I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. So we don't know much about the Eleusinian rites themselves, but of course, and here's where we get down to the first of our many digressions into poorly substantiated conspiracist conjecture, but the lack of information about the goings-on in these ceremonies hasn't stopped modern psychedelia enthusiasts from conjecturing wildly about them, as we hear in this excerpt from Terence McKenna author of the stoned ape theory of human consciousness development through psychedelics. If people drank something from a special cup called a kekekion, and uh, recipes supposedly exist for what they drank, and it's honey, barley, something else, and always water. Graves argued that water is not something that you list as an ingredient of something you drink. He said the inclusion of water in this list is in order that there can be an augum. An augum is when you make a list of things in such a way that the first letters spell out a word. So the idea was that in Demotic Greek, the words for barley, honey, water, and this fourth ingredient that I can't remember, those four words can be arranged to spell out the word miko, which means mushroom. So Robert Graves was convinced that a psilocybin mushroom lay behind the Eleusinian mysteries. This is a pretty good, uh, this is uh, not entirely unreasonable. Now, but for there a new theory, which was that uh, on the plain of Eleusis, they grew uh, barley. And these people thought that there may have been a special strain of claviceps. Do you all know what claviceps is? Do you all know what ergot is? Ergot is a smut. A smut is a disgusting disease, a fungal disease of grain. Ergonamine tartrate, if you've got a kilo of it, you can settle down and make several million hits of LSD. Wasson and Hoffman argued that what they were doing at Eleusis is that they were brewing an ergot beer. They were deliberately gathering barley that was infected with claviceps and they were uh, 
brewing an intoxicating beer and people were having a hallucinogenic experience. Well, and here, in an even more appropriate contemporary scenario, Bruce Damer piles on during an interview on the Joe Rogan podcast. They were walking next to fields which had wheat, which had tiny mushroom-like purple. It's a perpia, a, a brain is shot today, but it was a, a, basically a, a rust that would grow on the wheat that was used to make the kaikion drink that would be given to the initiates after nine days or eight or eight or nine days. So this is like some ergot-based thing? Ergot-based is an ergotamine, sort of an ergot-based. How do we know this? Because I thought that was like a giant mystery as to what they were taking. Like some folks thought that it was psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Some people felt mm-hmm. it was an ergot beer. Mm-hmm. It was some sort of an ergot beer. I mean, Hoffman's book, he talks about it probably being an ergot beer of some sort. Right. But it, there was definitely an initiant potion. It was extremely powerful. But what makes you think that it was what you're saying? Uh, because you can find this, you know, in the area of Eleusis today, you can find, and I'm no expert. I mean, you should have an expert on this. Now, on the show. we're not saying these guys are wrong. We're just saying that A, the old adage about everything looking like a nail when you're a hammer, or a psilocybin trip when you're a consciousness expansion enthusiast, applies here. And B, there's no particular reason to think these guys have it all figured out when the preeminent scholars in the actual field of ancient Greek studies think they haven't. While the Eleusinian mysteries were perhaps the most important, there were other mystery cults, not only the Hellenized, that is, Greekified, Egyptian gods we mentioned earlier, but also the later Greco-Roman cult of Dionysius and the Roman Mithras cult. In his historical introduction to the New Testament, Dr. Bart Ehrman notes the importance of these groups in the late B.C. and early A.D. period in the Mediterranean and Middle East. Quote, Many of them evidently centered around a mythology of the death and resurrection of a god or goddess, a mythology ultimately rooted in ancient fertility religion. The periodic ritual of these cults apparently celebrated this mythology in a way that enabled the participants to become part of the entire transformative process of new life. That is to say, the enacted myth about the gods was transmuted into reality for the devotees, who believed they would live again, happily, after death. Those who wished to join were typically put through a period of ceremonial cleansing and instruction prior to being admitted to the ranks of the devotees. We have evidence to suggest that those who experienced the initiation, who could then join in the ceremonies when they were periodically celebrated, felt a greater peace with themselves and the world. This was an important way in which these cults were different from the traditional worship of the gods by those we now consider ancient pagans. That is, those who worship not one, but a number of gods, usually of the Greek and Roman pantheon. Most dutiful worshippers oriented their rituals around prayer and sacrifice to the gods because that is what the gods were understood to have demanded. Pray and sacrifice, and that particular god or goddess would bless you. Fail to do so, and you potentially suffered his or her wrath. The gods were concerned with what people did, not with what they specifically believed. No one sought to have a personal relationship with Zeus, for example, the way a Christian might say she has a personal relationship with Jesus today. Also, traditional pagan worship didn't have much to say about what happened to people after they died. Pretty much everyone went into Hades and had a sort of dull, uneventful afterlife, or else just ceased to exist in most Greco-Roman belief systems at the time. But the mystery religions, with their secrecy and exclusivity, were predicated on forming a close personal relationship with, for example, Dionysius, and devout believers were understood to be staking out a better, more joy-filled post-life existence, which ended up with their feeling more at peace with themselves and the world, as we just noted. 
This, of course, brings us to the question of how or whether these mystery cults, some of the earliest recorded secret societies, influenced Christianity as that religion developed and spread from its origins in what's now called the Middle East. That is, did later secret societies in the Christian West get their ideas from, for example, the Eleusinian Mysteries? Ehrman discusses this question in the same book, noting that there are significant parallels between the cults and early Christianity. Both were interested in secrecy, for example. Christianity was generally secretive during the periods when its followers were persecuted over the first few centuries of the Roman Empire, though those periods were shorter and less widespread than is believed by many Christians today. In addition, both Christians and mystery cult devotees worshipped a divine being who died and was resurrected, and who could give his followers a blissful afterlife. There were other parallels, purification rites similar to Christian baptism, periodic celebration of specific rites by cult members similar to the Christian celebration of the Lord's Supper, etc. But Quoting Ehrman directly, Recent scholarship has been less inclined to call Christianity a mystery cult, or to claim that it simply borrowed its characteristic ideas and practices from previously existing religions. In part, this is because we do not know very much about what happened during the mystery rituals, especially in the period when Christianity began. For example, did they typically partake of a meal commemorating the death of their Savior God? We simply don't know. Before we get completely off of this topic, we want to quote another Airman book, Lost Christianities, which covers the uniqueness of the so-called Gnostic sects of Christianity in the early centuries of the faith. We discussed the Gnostics in depth in our Philip K. Dick-centered Reality Part 2 show in 2019. We certainly did, but we're mentioning them here for a specific reason. While, as noted before, many Christians may have hidden their faith during periods of persecution, per Airman, for the Gnostics, the secrecy was the whole point of their faith. Discussing the huge trove of Gnostic texts found at Nag Hammadi in Egypt in the mid-20th century, he notes, Despite their inherent interest, many of these Gnostic texts are not simple to understand. And that, of course, is as it should be. If the knowledge necessary for salvation were simple and straightforward, we all would have figured it out long ago. But this is secret knowledge reserved for the elite, for the few, for those who really do have a spark of the divine within them a spark that needs to be rekindled and brought to life through the Gnosis, knowledge, from on high. While it is one thing to summarize the gist of the teachings of one Gnostic group or another, it is another thing to plumb the depths of the texts themselves. And there is scarcely any religious literature written in any language at any time that can be more perplexing and deliberately obscure than some of the Gnostic writings of Christian antiquity. One of the striking features of Christian Gnosticism is that it appears to have operated principally from within existing Christian churches that Gnostics considered themselves to be the spiritually elite of these churches, who could confess the creeds of other Christians, read the scriptures of other Christians, partake of baptism and Eucharist with other Christians, but who believed that they had a deeper, more spiritual, secret understanding of these creeds, scriptures, and sacraments. Gnostics were not out there forming their own communities. The Gnostics were in here, with us, in our midst. And you couldn't tell one simply by looking. So, for the Gnostics, the secrecy was, in a sense, the whole enchilada. This perspective was perhaps influenced by the popularity of the mystery cults we discussed previously, with their secret rituals and supposed knowledge of the divine. But it also has obvious implications for later secret societies from the Christian world that we'll be examining. Hold on. You're suggesting these Gnostics may have influenced, for example, the Masons or the Rosicrucians? I am. But weren't nearly all of the texts we consider Gnostic lost from the early Christian period until they were rediscovered in the 20th century? So how would these societies, founded in the years separating those eras, have been influenced by those texts? Yes, that's true of actual physical copies of Gnostic texts. 
But these forms of Christianity were known about throughout the intervening centuries, not only via tradition, but also through the writings of Orthodox Church fathers who were arguing against, and therefore quoting, Gnostic Christian writers who lived at the same time. The Gnostic books were banned and largely forgotten by the Orthodox Church, but the Jeremiads against those writings, which quoted the originals and were seen as important theological texts by mainstream Christians, survived. So it was still possible for people to get the gist of what the Gnostics' arguments were, and to be influenced by them, even in the absence of the Gnostics' own writings. Moving on to other potential precursors of the legendary secret societies, we must once again mention the intriguing set of beliefs and practices surrounding the ancient Greek genius Pythagoras. Discoverer of geometry, whom we have previously characterized as a big weirdo who, notably, forbade his followers from eating beans lest they fart. Not, we should note, because he hated the smell, but rather because farts were made up of pieces of the farter's soul. The reason we're mentioning him, though, is not related to the musical fruit, but rather to the secrecy and strangeness that characterized the man and his followers. For example, Pythagoreans literally worshipped certain numbers. Like the number 10. In fact, to quote Professor Spence from his great course, Pythagoras taught that numbers and numerical ratios were the keys to understanding reality. The real reality, that is. Mathematics, thus, was a mystery. Moreover, they believed that the universe was constructed exclusively of rational numbers. That is, numbers that could be represented in fractions as x over y. This formulation doesn't include numbers that are vital to modern mathematics, including the so-called irrational numbers. For example, the square root of 2. And the Pythagoreans took this dictate pretty seriously, which leads us to another interesting legend stating that when one of his students proved that irrational numbers existed, Pythagoras or his students literally threw the guy out of their boat and drowned him for his offenses against the divinity of math. The story is unlikely to have happened as related, but it's worthwhile to consider that these folks were considered fanatical, secretive, and crazy enough that the story at the time seemed plausible. In addition, initiates were required to speak to no one for five years in order to become a follower of Pythagoras. Plus, they had to be celibate, give up their possessions, and become vegetarians. All of this before they could even stand in the presence of the master and learn the mathematical secrets of the universe. And when he lectured to anyone who hadn't gone through these purification stages, Pythagoras would only do so while talking through a curtain. Interesting. But did any of this influence later secret societies? Absolutely. Specifically, the Freemasons, who have a propensity for projecting their existence back sometimes thousands of years before the group's actual founding, are believed by their members to have taken a number of elements of their organization and secret rites from Pythagoras and company. We've got a few more of these ancient concepts to cover, and then we can get to the meat of this story, but we promise all of this is going to pay off down the road, so please stick with us. Next up is the topic of Hermeticism and its shadowy origins with a figure usually known as Hermes Trismegistus. Translation, the thrice greatest Hermes. Some of our fanciest readers may be assuming this refers to a very expensive brand of French scarf. That's Hermes, you Claude. And a much smaller South Louisiana-oriented group may recognize the name of a fair-to-middling Mardi Gras crew that rolls first on Friday. I mean, they got decent lights with that neon, but they ain't no muses, darling. Yeah, you right. But what we're talking about here is a mystic connection of the Greek god of writing and magic, Hermes, with his equivalent from the ancient Egyptian pantheon, Toth. Oh, now crew with Toth, there's a parade, share. But they got so many doin' floats. 
by the time Barkas rolls, I'm fitting to pass out from all them abetas I drunk. Ain't it the truth? But back to our topic. Hermes Trismegistus was a completely separate divine being from the original flavor Hermes, and was primarily known as the apocryphal author of a series of writings renowned for their great wisdom. These, as you might expect, came to be known as the Hermetic Library, and the branch of knowledge and study devoted to them is called Hermeticism. The Hermetic texts were long believed to date back to earliest antiquity, but these days scholars place their creations somewhere around the year 100 CE, meaning that these ideas emerged from the stew of religious and philosophical concepts that were roiling the Roman world and which would eventually produce not only Orthodox Christianity and Christian Gnosticism, as we've noted, but also important schools of thought like Neoplatonism. The Hermetic text's unique contribution here was not only their detailed discussions of philosophy and other topics, like alchemy and astrology, but also their perspective. That is, that all true religions originate from a single, genuine theology, which was given directly from God to man in time immemorial. The term for this is Prisca Theologica, and that term actually dates to the Renaissance, 1300 or so years after these texts were written, a time when they were rediscovered and when they became highly influential with a wide range of renowned scholars. Including Giordano Bruno, who was famously burned at the stake for, among other things, believing the earth rotated. And an even wider range of crackpots. And with some who were an intriguing combination of the scholar and crackpot, i.e. Isaac Newton. We'll get back to him momentarily. By this point, the Christians who embraced Hermetic texts thought of them as being written by a sort of pagan prophet who foretold the development of Christianity. Remember, they thought these texts predated Jesus, when in reality they appear to have been written in the decades after his death. We're not going to do any more synopsizing of this topic because we stumbled upon an incredibly useful, interesting YouTube channel called Esoterica, where one Dr. Justin Sledge breaks it down for us. In a manuscript bearing a tight, though legible, Greek minuscule hand, appear to be primordial wisdom stretching back to the most remote antiquity. Indeed, the source of all wisdom itself. The task of rendering that Greek into Latin was given to the extremely talented scholar Marsilio Ficino. And most famously, he interrupted his own translation of Plato's complete works to take up the task. Ficino, only in his late 20s at the time, began the work of translating what he believed, and many at the time also believed, was the teaching of the sages of all sages, perhaps the teacher of Moses himself, the art philosopher and hierophant Hermes Trismegistus. The texts Ficino produced have become the backbone of what we now know as the Corpus Hermeticum, the collected wisdom and teachings attributed to the thrice great Hermes. What's come down to us doesn't seem to have come down to us systematically. It appears that the Hermetic texts were graded based on some initiation process that is now unclear to us. What we now possess seems to be texts at various seemingly random levels of this process. So it's unclear how these texts should be read, in what order, or even after what kind of initiatory or revelatory experiences. The philosophical Hermetica are typically structured as discourses between Hermes and his pupils. Though Corpus Hermeticum I is taken to be a discourse between divine nous, or mind, and Hermes Trismegistus himself. The content of the discourses range enormously despite their relative brevity, from the nature of the cosmos, to the origin and nature of evil, to the process of change, the nature of the mind and the soul, the very origins of the cosmos itself, and most importantly, the process by which one can achieve salvation. Sometimes, a single tractate may cover several of these topics only in a couple of pages. The best theory we have as to the origins of the text is that they began as brief sentences, much like the wisdom literature of the indigenous Egyptian culture, and around these sentences grew a history of learned exposition. These discourses, as I mentioned earlier, were probably part of a system of graded lessons, for initiates passing higher and higher to what seems to have been the goal of the Hermetic philosophy, the salvific unification of the initiate's mind-slash-soul with the divine mind or soul that is the ground of being itself. The worldview of the Hermetica is difficult to reconstruct, but let's give it a try. They appear to have held that an androgyne divine mind begat the cosmos, sometimes called the second god, or logos, and in turn created human beings, which are seen as both divine and non-divine, given that they are both composed of perishable matter and imperishable soul, or mind. 
This is basically a monistic worldview, although some antibody dualism does appear from time to time. The apparent task of the initiate is to ascend through the planetary spheres, through both ethical purity and mental contemplation, until reunited with the divine oneness, which seems in some sense possible while still in a physical body. This importantly separates the Hermetists from the Gnostics, who are typically held to be radical dualists, viewing the physical world as fundamentally evil and in need of escape. exactly are we talking about this at the beginning of our Secret Societies series? Because many of the secrets we're going to hear ascribed to these groups, and especially the larger overarching conspiracist view of these societies' roles in generating and concealing knowledge, will touch on hermetic and other esoteric topics. And while these are a fantastically interesting field of study, as Dr. Sledge's YouTube channel can amply demonstrate, they also have an unfortunate tendency to attract the most credulous sort of ravings. And? What? I presume you're going to play one of these ravings? Oh, okay, if I must. The secret of secrets is the grand arcanum, which is hiding in these texts. It's the magnum opus that the philosopher has been looking for, the elixir of life, etc. It all has to do with the microcosm. Of course, what else could it be? In the Bible is the story of the microcosm of the man and how man was created. It's a literary masterpiece. But in the Bible, there is only one story, and that is the story of the creation of man and how man is the temple of what they call God or the temple of Solomon. Solomon's temple was not built with uh, hammer or saw or the, or the sound of hammer or saw. The temple is the body, you see, and this is how it works. This is how the, the temple is built. It's built on the principle of 12 because the universe is built on 12. Everything the universe does, it does through the number 12. 12 is the completeness of its cycles, you see? And we have to understand numerology and, and the power of the numbers. What does one mean? What does two mean? What does three mean? When you doctor the books and you change their true message and you overlay it with historical facts and, and things to blur out the true beautiful message that is at the bottom of it, um, you do that for control so that the people do not know the true riches of the wisdom that's in these scriptures. And I'm uncovering those, those true riches that are in the Bible. And you have to understand that the Bible is the greatest astrological treatise in the history of this planet. God, I enjoyed that. So, we've introduced Hermeticism. It looks like all we have to do is synopsize the Old Testament. Fuck off, Jesuit. How long is this quote-unquote introduction going to last? It's not as bad as all that. I just have to discuss a few big ideas, the most important of which is Solomon's Temple. Okay, but the second I hear, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, I'm out. Fair. Okay, so perhaps one of the most widely revered sites in the world is the hill currently known as the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. Of course, Dome of the Rock is what Muslims call it. Jews have a totally different point of reference when it comes to this particular piece of real estate. That is, it's the site of the two great Jewish temples that once stood in the location of what is currently one of the world's great mosques. Jeez, that situation sounds like it might lead to some hurt feelings. You think? 
but let's get to that in a moment. Solomon's Temple is one of those iconic concepts that predates reliable written records, so in the absence of those, we have to incorporate those records that we have, which in this case means the books of the Hebrew Bible, or as many nominal Christians will know it, the Old Testament. There's a large part of the first book of Kings, or, as a recently former president might have called it, One Kings. That book goes into what might be termed a tedious level of detail about the building of said temple, so we're only going to make Dana do a little bit of it as narration. But we're also going to give her some portentous sound effects to go with the uninteresting words. And the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof twenty cubits, and the height thereof thirty cubits. And the porch before the temple of the house, twenty cubits was the length thereof, according to the breadth of the house, and ten cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. Riveting stuff. But it's surprising how important these verses, which amount to the recitation of blueprints, will seem to our future secret society members. And others. Please recall that Sir Isaac Newton believed that his work on the dimensions of Solomon's temple was far more important than all of his contributions to physics. Told you we'd get back to Sir Newton. This teaches us two things. A. You can be the world's greatest physics genius and still be absolutely fucking wrong about which of your efforts really contributes to the store of human knowledge. B. Really smart people have historically taken this temple shit very, very seriously. Continuing the traditional history of the temple as related in sacred Jewish books, it was completed during King Solomon's reign, and the whole point of building this big-ass temple was that it would be, in the eyes of Yahweh, That was a usually unspoken word for the one and only God in the Jewish religion. A fitting building to serve as the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, any child of the 80s knows what the Ark of the Covenant is, and that one Yankee archaeologist waged a two-hour, apparently ineffectual attempt to keep it out of the hands of the Nazis. Which didn't matter much, as the moment said Nazis opened said Ark, they got face-melted in a way that still haunts young Jesuit's dreams. Dana, that's not fair. I know it looks hokey now, but in the early 80s, that shit was scary. So many of us know that the Ark was a gold-encrusted box that, in Spielberg's version, contained sand and pretty lady murder ghosts. But in the Bible, it was supposed to hold the original tablets on which God himself had etched the Ten Commandments in the presence of Moses. Confusingly, if you follow the Bible story, these Ten Commandments that would have ended up in the Ark are actually somewhat different from the original Ten Commandments that were listed in the Torah slash Bible. That is, the ones that many of you learned in Sunday school. But the second set were supposedly inscribed by the Almighty after Moses broke the first set. Also penned by the finger of God himself. When the prophet got super pissed at the Israelites worshipping a golden calf. But the ones that Moses broke are the ones that everyone remembers, so let's just say those are the ones in the Ark. Now, the Ark was this super powerful object that was carried ahead of the Hebrew armies, and which ensured their victories over the various peoples they conquered in their quest to secure the land that God had promised to Abraham. That is, essentially, the land that comprises the modern nation of Israel though the boundaries of this kingdom would be just as disputed in ancient times as they are in the current political climate. Okay, so now we understand. After hundreds of years, King Solomon is chosen by Yahweh to build a temple worthy to hold the ark and the commandments therein. But once they were placed in, as it's known, the holiest of holies in the temple, the story ends, right? Au contraire. According to the biblical accounts, the first temple was destroyed in an assault by King Nebuchadnezzar II in about 600 BC. 
Thing is, though, modern archaeologists dispute basically everything about that first temple, including especially the idea that Solomon was the king when it was built. They actually think the first temple was built around 300 years after Solomon's reign. What is undisputed, though, is that whatever the first temple was, it was besieged and destroyed, and another temple was built afterward and lasted for a really long time. Almost 600 years. This was the temple that was refurbished by King Herod about 20 years before Jesus' birth, and from which Jesus himself drove the money changers in an important gospel narrative. Eventually, the second temple was destroyed in 70 CE by the Romans as punishment for an ongoing Jewish rebellion. Which we mention in our Assassinations non-JFK edition episode, specifically about the siege of Masada. Eventually, Islamic rulers took over Jerusalem and built the Dome of the Rock Mosque in honor not only of the place where Abraham, who is important in the origin stories of Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike, was called to sacrifice his son Isaac before God called the whole thing off, but also because the same rock where Isaac was supposed to get cut was the launching point for the Prophet Muhammad's night journey, in which, in the company of angels, he toured the heavens in a single evening. That mosque was built in the 7th century CE, and has been in place since, though, as we'll see, there has been some back and forth in terms of who controls the building and what it's called. In fact, the current-day site of the Dome of the Rock is also, not coincidentally, the site of the famous Wailing Wall, the holiest place in the world for followers of Judaism. You may recognize this as the place where devout Jews write prayers on slips of paper and place those tiny slips in cracks between the bricks. And the reason that those devout Jews place those scraps of prayer in those cracks is because the Wailing Wall was originally the western wall of the expansion of the Second Temple, erected by Herod the Great, also known to Christians as Herod, the guy who tried to kill all the babies to murder Jesus, though that description is disputed, both by other religions and by scholars. In other words, the Wailing Wall is the only remaining intact piece of the Second Temple, so the Jews focus their worship there. But for our secret society's purposes, the most important things about the site are the location itself, and then the legends about the structure of Solomon's original temple, and the secrets that structure supposedly hid. Anything else? Yes, the temple-slash-dome of the rock legends also mention that there are secret tunnels, passages, and rooms, which will also play a part in our later legends of the Templars. Ali of Herat, who visited the Temple Mount in 1173, when Jerusalem was under Christian rule, gave this description. Underneath the rock is the cave of the souls. They say that Allah will bring together the souls of all true believers to this spot. You descend to this cave by some fourteen steps. The Cave of the Souls is the height of a man. Its length extends eleven paces from east to west, and thirteen paces from north to south. Muslims say that the souls of the dead can be heard here as they await the Day of Judgment. And according to both Muslim tradition and the Talmud of the Jews, the rock lies at the centre of the world. Beneath it is the abyss where Muslims say the waters of paradise flow. But the Talmud says the waters of the flood rage. In some Jewish traditions... It is also regarded as the place where the Ark of the Covenant stood, and where, when Solomon's temple was destroyed in 587 BC, the Ark was concealed and remains hidden. So, introduction finished? Not quite.
what we do here is go back, 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 back. And we're back. And we're back. With another episode of the Wait, Bros- wait, 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 James, James. They might not know who we are yet. Oh, right. This is a promo. Well, I'm James. And I'm Matt. And together, we're the Bros and Brews podcast. We're coming at you every week with worldly discussions, an art meets life questions podcast. What three albums would you take to a deserted island? How comfortable are you with sex and sexuality? Is it ethical to have children? What actually makes a great actor? We use our personal experiences, the craft of acting, and pop culture as a springboard to discuss everything. From uncomfortable truths, demonized issues, and problems often swept under the rug. But don't worry. We have fun along the way. Come join us for our weekly check-in. And we'll see you next time. Peace! This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.